0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about the failures they've had in their lives and what they learned from them. I'm your host, Ozan Morel. Before I introduce today's guest, I have a request from you. The podcast is fairly new, so I would really appreciate your help in spreading the word. You can do that in one of three ways. You can tell your friends about the podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform that you're listening on, or you can leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. In addition, if you'd like to keep in touch with me and say hello to me, you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter, The Weekly Contrarian. It has thousands of subscribers and readers call it the one email I look forward to each week. So every Thursday, you'll get a list of tools, articles, books, and other gems that challenge conventional wisdom and change the way that you look at the world. You can sign up for that by going to my website ozanwarol.com or texting my first name Ozan O Z A N to 345345. And if you sign up now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook: 8 Principles for Innovating Your Thinking. And again, you can get that right now on the go by texting O Z A N to 345345 or heading over to my website ozanmarol.com. Today's guest on Famous Failures is the author Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen started off her career in law, even clerking for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, before stopping everything to become a writer. Although that transition from law into writing was pitted with failure, it turned out to be one of the best decisions she has made. She's written four New York Times bestsellers, The Happiness Project, Happier at Home, Better Than Before, and most recently, The Four Tendencies, Not only that, but she's also built an enormous readership, selling millions of copies of books and starting a weekly podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen has walked arm in arm with the Dalai Lama. She's been interviewed on Oprah, and she now joins me on an episode of Famous Failures. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, here's my interview with Gretchen Rubin.
1: Looking back on your life, what have been, say, two to three of the most valuable failures that you've had? Well, by far, my most
2: valuable failure was the publication of my biography of JFK called 40 Ways to Look at JFK, because as they say in the publishing industry, it did not find its audience. That's the way they put it. And that was an important moment for me because I felt very helpless to do anything to help the book. was very frustrated by that, that here I had poured all this time and energy into writing what I thought was a really, really great book, and I couldn't do anything to help the book once it was written. And it wasn't like my publisher did a bad job or anything, but it was just that there wasn't that much they could do either. And I became very interested in this idea of how I connect directly with an audience? And fortunately for me, this was just at the time that blogging was really becoming easy enough that even somebody who is not technical, wasn't kind of a computer type, could figure out how to do it. And so that was got me thinking about that might be a way that I could try to connect with an audience myself, Um, apart from any gatekeepers like booksellers or book reviewers or, you know, television bookers or radio bookers. I could try to reach people myself.
1: So the 40 ways to look at JFK Book, I think that was one of Two Forty Ways books you wrote, right? Yeah. The other one was Forty Ways to Look at Winston Churchill. Yeah. And which one came first? The Churchill book, and that book did better. The Churchill. Okay. Yeah. What other failures have you had that you found to be valuable?
2: Well, I don't know that this is a failure, but it was was not a huge success, and I think that's interesting. One thing that I've seen happen to a lot of people in a lot of different kind of creative industries or, you know, whether they're writing a screenplay or they're writing a book or something, it's almost dangerous to have a big success right away. I think a lot of times when people have a big success, a lot of times with creative things, success is partly you doing a great job, partly that it's like a great package, partly it's just the time. Like, is the audience ready for this? Is there something that you're tapping into? which with a big project which you're working on for at least months probably years in advance like you can't really game that like is there some huge news item that means that nobody's paying any attention to anything but you so you, it's, like, it's partly under your control and partly it's out of your control. But when people have a huge success, what I've noticed is that they sometimes think like, well, this is just the kind of person that I am. I'm just like a hugely successful screenwriter. I'm a hugely successful TV writer. I'm a hugely successful advertising executive. I'm a hugely successful nonfiction writer. And this is just like, this is just my natural level. And they don't understand, well, it could be. It's true for some people, not that many people. And so I almost think like, I'm glad that my books sort of were scraping by, because it made me really fight for every reader and every everything I could do and not take it for granted. Cause I think sometimes a, a success that's too early can be misleading and then it kind of sets you up for disappointment and failure and maybe not being as like strategic and realistic as you might be.
1: I love that. And yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And success can boost egos too, I think. So when, when you do achieve that momentous success early on in your career, then you think you're essentially invincible. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. No, and it's interesting, like,
2: I was just talking to a bunch of um, book book industry people the other day, and we were talking about whether writers allow themselves to be edited, and they were saying sometimes as, like, writers get on in their careers, they forget that they were ever edited, and they think, like, well, I'm just great, and clearly I'm just great because everybody loves my books, and it's like, yeah, but remember, for those other books you allowed, you took good advice, and so these were editors saying, you know, even the best writers need to stay open to editing. And I think you're right. If you have a success right away, you're like, oh, I'm right. Everybody else should trust my judgment because clearly I'm brilliant. Whereas in fact, you're probably not as, you, you know, most people could use other people's input.
1: Of course, definitely. Otherwise, you tend to develop tunnel vision, which is not useful. I'm particularly interested in hearing a little bit more about your transition from yeah. law into into writing. So you clerked on the, I think, the Second Circuit, and then for Justice O'Connor yeah. on the Supreme Court. And so, how did you transition from that into writing, and what failures or roadblocks did you encounter along the way?
2: Well, it all happened very gradually. And one thing that happened that happens to me frequently, and has happened to me my whole life, is I will get obs- like obsessively interested in something. Um, so this is something that happens to me. You know, it's fun. At that time, I was clerking. And I had this sort of moment of, of kind of epiphany where I was like, I was, went out of my lunch hour and I thought, well, what am I interested in the, in the world that everybody is interested in? And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex, and this to me, it was like, ah, huge idea. It came to me like, you know, money fame, sex. Like this came to me and seemed like this giant topic, very unified. So I started doing all this like relentless research into it. And this was before the internet, but I could run LexisNexis searches for free as a clerk. And so I would do that. And I would also check out books from the Supreme Court Library, which... Perk, Supreme Court justices can take out books. They can actually check out books from the Library of Congress. So I would do this, and nobody ever, I mean, nobody ever, Justice O'Connor, while she was checking out these books. But so I did that. And so I was doing this giant research project, but this is something that I do all the time anyway. But it just was taking up a lot of time. Like I was spending a lot of time after work, on the weekends, everything. And finally it started, you know, like after several, a sort of several things um, came together, and I started thinking, well, you know what? This is what somebody would do if they were going to write a book. And some people write a book for their job. They don't do it as their hobby. Like maybe I could do that. Maybe I could write a book as my job. And I did go ahead and take another job at the Federal Communications Commission for like 18 months, but I was already starting to think about, okay, I need to set myself up to make a transition. And I remember thinking, you know, at a certain point I would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. And this is the time for me to take that risk. My husband and I were moving from D.C. to New York, and I was like, if I take a job in New York as a lawyer, or if we decide to stay in Washington so I can take some job as a lawyer, he wanted to transition out of law too. So we were both like, let's move to New York, and we're just going to leave our law behind us and not stop paying our bar fees and just do something different. And so that's what I did. But I remember thinking, like, I might not have the guts to do this if I wait. I've got an idea. I want to do it. This is the time. Like, what more am I waiting for, like to signal to me that this is the time to take the risk?
1: Right. Yeah, I, I love that, uh, that line about uh, you'd rather fail as a writer than, than succeed as a lawyer. I think that's, that's, that's so true. And it's, it's great that you were able to sort of recognize this passion early on and, and take that risk and, you know, make a huge success out of it. So, so that's awesome. How do you fail when it comes to writing, the writing process?
2: Well, one of the things that I, you know, and everybody's so different. And one of the things that I write about all the time is there's no one right way. So if you mm-hmm. read a book, that's like the best way to do it is this. It's like, mm, maybe not because I know many people who do things very successfully in all different ways. But what works for me, I kind of have to think by writing. It's only by writing that I know what I think. And so... What I do is I take extensive notes and just like pages, like thousands of pages of notes, and then I start writing it out and like putting it into my own words. And what I do is, in terms of failure, is let it be bad. Like I just sort of try to choke it out. What like my point is, and then I edit it from there because what I'm trying to do is to is like to understand clearly what I think and just get something on the page. And I feel tremendous relief once I have like a beginning, a middle and an end. And so everything is there and then I can go through and polish. I love to edit, but it's hard to do original thinking. And so I have to allow myself to write very badly and really push myself to just like, just write, just take a stab at it. Like there's some complicated idea that I feel like I can't even really articulate. Okay. Just try to try to just somehow say something, no matter how bad it is, just to get it on paper. And then from there, I can begin to tinker with it. And that works much better for me than like trying to really get it right as I go. Because if I'm really trying to get it right as I go, I tend to just like kind of seize up.
1: Yeah. And, and that's, that's something that's really hard that I've found at least for like people with perfectionist tendencies and type A personalities tend to want to get it right from the get-go. I see this with my students as well. They want their first draft to be as polished and perfect as possible. But what you're saying, I think, absolutely resonates with me in terms of, and I think Ern- Ernest Hemingway has this quote, too, about, you know, the first draft of anything is shipped in, in that's terms not of your right. But I
2: would say that's not necessarily true for everyone because I know people who write as perfectly as they can, and when they're done, they're done, and they do very little editing. So I'm, I wouldn't say this is the best way. I would just right. say it's one way because some people really do – they begin at the beginning and they make it as perfect as they can as they go. And then that's it. Then they're, just like, then they're done. Uh, I can't work that way. It sounds like you can't work that way. And maybe most people can't work that way. But it is a way that some people do work. I have friends who work
1: that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think for people who tend to get stuck with the first drafts, that the process you described might be a better alternative is to just, instead of trying to get it right, to, uh, to just get it on paper.
2: But so the one thing I would say, this is like the one piece of writing advice that I feel qualified to give. It works like a charm. Which is that if you are struggling to write something, like let's say you're tr- struggling to write a law paper, probably the problem is you don't have anything to say. And once people have something to say, it's much easier to write. And so if you feel like you're paralyzed or you're stuck or you can't, you're like, I can't, like, oh my gosh, I have five more pages to go and how am I going to write it? It's like, well, what are you trying to say? Because whether you're writing perfectly or you're writing imperfectly, if you have something to say, you at least have something to write down. But I think it's surprising to me how often when people are trying to write, when I'm like, well, really, what are you, what are you trying to communicate? They're kind of like, mm, they don't really know. I'm like, well, you're not going to, that's not going to make, writing, trying to write a 10-page paper about something you have no view about is not going to be easy. <laughs> and it's just right. going to be terrible because it's going to be a bunch of words. I'm sure you've read papers like that where you're like you have the same nonsensical statement that you're just paraphrasing. It's like it's a, Absolutely. It, you don't just like it doesn't become meaningful if you just type enough words on the page. But if somebody's got something to say, even if it's not that well written, a lot of times it can shine through. But so I would say always very clearly have in your mind what are you trying to communicate? And then the writing becomes easier.
1: That's a really important point. And I do I do I do see this a lot in, in, in the the uh, the papers that I grade for my students and I always ask my students to sort of to, to step back and, and think along the ways that you described, like what is this paragraph for? Yes what is exactly. the purpose of this paragraph? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Because a lot of the times they just sort of put themselves on autopilot and they're writing and writing. And it's like, you know, one meaningless paragraph after another. Yes.
2: And you think like, how could a person do that? And you're like, not clear, but people do it constantly. Wait, what is this paragraph for? I completely agree. It's just like, what is this paragraph for? It's like when I was helping my daughter she's in, she's going to college next year but she would write things and I'm like I have I, I'm like I literally have no idea what you're trying to communicate or what does this mean and she's like I don't know I don't remember what I was thinking I'm like well then it's got to come out because if I don't know and you don't know then it shouldn't be there. Yeah. She kind of had to learn that discipline.
1: This is sort of a more of a selfish question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. So when you left the practice of law and you went into the publishing world, in terms of like finding an agent and, and doing all of that, did you hit any roadblocks, any, mm. any struggles in, in that area?
2: I applied to several agents before I I got my agent and she was very young and just start like baby agent was the term she uses now. (laughs) So she was just starting out and I was just starting out. And so at the time I was like, I don't know, like I would have liked to have had like a big famous agent with like a really well-known name. And that would have been, I think that would have, I would have been thrilled. Um, and I definitely applied to some of those people and got turned down by some of those people. One of the things my mother always says to me, she reminds me of that old, that old story. I think it's like a Zen story or whatever, some kind of folktale where somebody, you know, the whole story about the guy where, how do you know if this is good for you? How do you know if it's good news or bad news? Do you know the story?
1: No, I don't know the story.
2: Okay. So the story is once there was a farmer who had a son and a horse. And so one day the horse comes back and there's, he's got a new horse with him and all the neighbors say, Oh, how lucky you have this new horse. And he goes, how do you know if it's good? And so then his son gets on the horse, and he gets thrown off the horse, and he breaks his leg. And the neighbors say, oh, what bad luck. And the farmer says how do you know? So then the soldiers sweep through the town and they're conscripting all the young men, but they can't take the guy's son because he's in bed with a broken leg. And the neighbors say, ah, what good luck. And the neighbor says, how do you know? And so the point of it is like, you just don't know what's good luck and bad luck. So at the time I might have been like, Ooh, I don't know if this, like, maybe I would have been better off if I had some like fancy famous agent. In fact, my agent is absolutely brilliant and perfectly suited to me. hundred percent understands what I'm trying to do, has really pushed me all along the way to try new tools, some of which have been, I've tried things that have failed. She's, you know, like very data driven, which I am not. So that's hugely important that I have somebody who's sort of like looking at the numbers for me. I'm very engaged in learning how to use new things um, and like thinking about unusual ways to promote books or thinking about books. And so it was like the best possible match. Can't imagine having a better match of an agent. But at the time, I wasn't so sure because I'm like, well, she hasn't right. been around that long, and you know, she doesn't have that deep list. And um, then she went out and started her own agency. I'm like, well, I hope that works out, since I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> one of her clients. It all worked out great. But at the time, I wasn't so sure.
1: Are there any? particular resources that you found helpful that you would recommend to people who are, well, I, um, I did a, I did a writing. blog
2: post called um, like a question that i am often asked, how do I become a published author? So you could just link to that. Mm. And in that I, I post to someone named Jane Friedman who has extensive online resources, like the best about, understanding the terms, understanding like how do things usually work, what do you do if you're just starting out, what do you need to have, like it's excellent. So if you just go to that, and, and, then I, and in my post, I talk about sort of like what are the big lessons that I've learned along the way, and then, yeah, and then I point to her deep resources. Yeah. So there's tons, of, there's tons of material out there, but you have to avail yourself of it. Okay. If you care. Some people want to write and they don't care, in which case, you don't have to worry about it.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but if you do, I mean, if, if the goal is to become a, a published yeah. writer, then then yeah. you do have to bother with all of the, yeah. the logistics and the technicalities. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yes. And some people feel like writing the book is the hard part. And I'm kind of like writing the book is kind of the fun, easy part, I hate to say, because it's the part you yeah. can just do yourself. You're in total control.
1: I have a, um, it's funny you say that. I, I have a book coming out with an academic publisher uh, mm. in October. And um, and but I always sort of spared a lot of this the 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 process of getting an agent and whatnot just because academic publishers you can just submit a book proposal to them, which is what I did, and then it was all without an agent essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, But now I'm sort of getting into sort of getting ready to to market the book and whatnot. I'm just I'm I'm really (laughs) learning a lot of what goes into the publishing process that I wasn't aware of, of before. So it's been a great learning experience for me. And and yeah, you're right. Writing the book was, was the, the fun, easy part. In hindsight, uh, mm-hmm. getting ready to market it and get the word out is going to be much more difficult.
2: Yeah. Well, that's a good example of like understanding the difference between trade publishers and academic publishers, because it's a totally different set of rules for academic publishers. So you just have to know, like, Or self-publishing, which a lot of people do very successfully. It's like you just want to understand what the differences are, so that you, if you enter into a system, you kind of know what the pros and cons are. Because there's a lot of advantages to self-publishing, but there's some disadvantages too. Uh, There's a lot of advantages to traditional publishing, but there's you know disadvantages to that too. So, and academic some advantages, some disadvantages. So you just want to know what you're getting yourself into.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to talk with me about yeah. this. I really oh. appreciate it.
2: But maybe I should say one more thing. Cause this was like yeah, a mantra sure. that has really helped me is yeah, sure. um, one thing that I always remind myself is to enjoy the fun of failure, because I think people do sometimes have a feeling like, I'm sure you write about this all the time, like this feeling of shame or you want to pretend like right. it didn't happen. Um, and so enjoying the fun of failure is trying to recast it in sort of this more, more lighthearted way. And I remember one time I was talking about this and somebody said to me, oh, I think you should reframe it. It's not failure. It's this, it's that, it's the other thing. And at first I thought, well, that sounds right. And then I thought, no, that's totally wrong. Because what this person was saying is you need to kind of go, twist yourself in a knot to pretend like you didn't fail. Whereas my whole point is it's part of success. Failure is part of success. If you're not, if you're not failing, if I'm not failing, I'm probably not trying hard enough. Um, I'm not being, I'm not pushing my boundaries far enough. If some things aren't working, if I'm just doing everything the way I've always done it, and that's everything's just kind of tootling along, that's not a good sign. And so this fun, trying to enjoy the fun of failure. I can't say that I always do enjoy the fun of failure, but I try to have the enjoy the fun of failure because it is a necessary part of success.
0: Hi everyone, thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures. Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N three four five three four five so once again that's my first name ozan ozan to three four five three four five or if you're in front of your computer you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address if you act now you'll also get a free ebook called the contrarian handbook eight principles to innovate your thinking as always thank you for listening and see you next time